Welcome to the Design the Future podcast, where we talk with women leading the way towards a better built world. Design the Future is hosted by me, Lindsay Baker, with Kira Gould. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Design the Future podcast. It's good to be with you. This is Lindsay. And this is Kira. Yeah, here we are, Kira. How are you doing? How's your how's your summertime feeling these days? Um, summary, I'm getting ready to go on vacation. So I'm excited. I'm I haven't been on a family a family vacation away by airplane since pre-pandemic. So we're pretty stoked. Wow. We've been fingers and nope. like, you know, pack some snacks or something. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's right. The delays are real out there. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for you. Isn't it amazing the way that we're still doing this thing where we have to kind of cloister ourselves before we go on vacation? I, I kind of thought that was like a first half of the pandemic thing. I know. Now I'm like, oh, no, that's just how we, we just all have to sort of, yeah, if you really want to know that you're going to have, you're yep. going to go on your travel, you're going to have fun, but you have to sort of not have fun for two weeks before. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's interesting too. It also really puts you know, that we are dependent on the consideration of those in our circle. Yeah. Um, we had uh, plans with another family last weekend that her daughter was exposed. And so she called and said she was exposed. She hasn't tested positive yet. And I said, we're going to have to cancel to err on the side of caution because I didn't want to threaten the vacation. You know, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. was like, I just can't take the risk. And she completely understood. It did turn out that the daughter had COVID and I'm so glad I'm so oh. grateful to her for letting us know you know I was like yes. that's very considerate and it did disappoint everyone it ruined our week everybody's weekend a little bit but totally so worth it I know I I had a I had a very I was very thankful for um for my own like close call recently where a friend was going to come to my to dinner for my birthday and he was asymptomatic but at the end of a bout of COVID and he's just, he was feeling great and he'd gone to do a couple other things and was feeling fine, but was still testing positive, unfortunately. Mm. And so he didn't come. And then he ended up, unfortunately, we think he gave somebody else COVID afterwards. And it was like, oh man, you really did the right thing by not coming to our dinner. Totally. Because, yeah. Totally. It's just, uh, uh, so if you're thinking about it out there, um, do, do the thing where you tell people. Yeah. It's, it's a very interesting application of the golden rule, right? Uh, like <laughs> yeah, it is. And I mean, I know, especially like if you have young kids, I understand that this is just a friend of mine was telling me she's just glad when she doesn't have to be the one to say like, oh, my kids got, the, you know, like this happened because yeah. she gets so many of those these days that. Um, totally. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I'm very excited for your travel and I hope that it is as seamless as possible, or even if it's not seamless that you yep. enjoy. It'll be great. <laughs> I can't wait. I'm, I'm very, very excited for a little bit of lake time and some New York city time, which I have missed New desperately. Yay. Yes. I don't know that our listeners appreciate that. One of the things that brought us together was a mutual love for New York city. So <laughs> I'm very excited for you to get. You're to right. I, we haven't yet figured out a way to have an episode focused entirely on <laughs> New York. Yeah. Although yeah. when we have New York guests, we often sort of veer off into that a little bit, I think. We do. It's <laughs> true. We probably don't keep our our like, you know, love that 
hidden. Um, but mm -hmm. yes. Okay. I'm so glad for you that you get to thank you go back to the city. Uh, I, I hope it's wonderful and you eat all the most delicious foods. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, okay. Well, I am excited that we have you for a little bit longer so that we can have this, um, th this amazing guest who we have been trying to have on the podcast for a while. And I'm hoping that the stars have finally aligned um, for us to have a conversation today with Jane Abernathy. We are so thrilled, Jane, to have you with us. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. I'm really happy to be chatting with you as well. It's, um, yeah, I've always liked the work that you do, and, and I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, we are really excited um, for everything that you're bringing to this. So for those that don't know Jane, Jane is this Chief Sustainability Officer at Human Scale. Um, and you'll hear more, but hopefully you know that Human Scale is a, a, a furniture company. I guess that hopefully that's a fair quick description, but you can tell us more about the, the full scope. Uh, Jane leads the company's efforts to create a net positive impact through both Human Scale's products and operations. Collaborating closely with company executives as well as designers and engineers, Jane guides the development process to help create the most sustainable products possible. With an eye on the future, Jane has led and developed sustainability initiatives within human scale, beginning from her tenure as a senior industrial designer. So I'm excited because I feel like people like Jane are just, you know, like you're, you're a part of this community, but coming from a slightly different angle and a different type of company than some of the folks that we talk to um, normally on the, on the pod. So I think this is going to be a ton of fun and we would love it if you could just start off by telling us a little bit about how you got involved in industrial design and sustainability and, and tell us about your path. Sure, um, I feel like industrial design was kind of a no-brainer. Like I always really liked art and design and drawing and design. And, and um, I also liked, you know, engineering kind of type thinking like um, math and there's always kind of some things that I enjoyed um, and problem solving, a big part of design is problem solving. And before even going into design as an industrial designer, I um, was aware that I'd be designing for mass production and that everything would get, you know, made multiple times over, possibly like hundreds of thousands of times. Um, and that, you know, I, initially I had kind of a bit of a, a um, like a crisis almost of should I even be going into industrial design if I if I care about the environment I'll be designing products and there'll be more products in the world there'll be more stuff made and that's all going to end up in landfill and, and we're going to use resources and I really wasn't sure if I should do it initially even before becoming a student and then um, once I thought about it a bit more I realized that um, as a designer, I have some of the choices that as a consumer I wouldn't have, like what kind of plastic you would use or how much material is used. Sometimes the shape or the form of the, the object can determine um, how much material is needed to make it, for example. Um, and it, as an industrial designer as well, a lot of the challenges have to do with really unpacking what does somebody need and, and finding a creative solution. And sometimes you can look at it at the, at the challenge or the problem in a completely different way where you can eliminate a whole lot of um, material or parts and pieces by just solving it in a completely different, uh, you know, completely different solution that doesn't require more product to be made, more features to be added. So, um, so then I did go into design and kind of kept my eye on sustainability the whole time. 
then eventually was asked to lead a sustainability project at human scale, which grew into a department and now influences how we operate as a whole company. So that's kind of been my path. Wow. Yeah. I love this, like this discovery that you could make decisions outside of the ones you were sort of initially imagining. And it seems like that's just been so much of the work that you do. Um, so I'm excited for you to tell people about like, yeah, what does it look like to really ask more questions than, than you uh, might initially assume. Um, but before we kind of go into that, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about I guess it's in part just working from the angle of industrial design, but also just working with, with product. Um, I think a lot of our listeners might be interested in learning more about what the day-to-day -day is. So can you tell us about what people should know about the work uh, that goes into product sustainability and maybe what people should be interested in or, or good at if they wanted to go into that realm? Yeah, I think... Um... Obviously, if you're a good designer, that's going to be helpful. Really good at problem solving, creative problem solving. So usually the obvious answer is not going to be cheap enough, um, feasible enough, that it's probably, there's probably a good reason why no one's doing that. So we look at sort of an obvious answer, like can we re remove a toxin or can we use a lot less material? You know, usually the obvious answer is going to be one where you're going to, the status quo is, is not to be making products that are extremely sustainable at the moment. So, so when you look at things in a whole new way, having sort of that creative problem solving is going to be a big part of, you know, look, looking at things with fresh eyes and, and unpacking what really needs to uh, be addressed. I, I have heard this expression um, when I was in design school that nobody wants toast. Uh, sorry, nobody wants a toaster. People just want toast. If they could get toast without a toaster, then you definitely wouldn't be making any toasters, right? So just to unpack it from that level of like, what do people really want? Oh, they want toast. Maybe we don't need to make a toaster if you have another solution that you can come up with. And that eliminates all of those components and, and all that material that's being used. But the other part of it is when you make a decision or you have an idea of how to make something more sustainable, there are so many other folks involved after the design is kind of determined that make it happen in practice. Like I think of something like using ocean plastic in our, um, our smart ocean chair you know, to, to write that down on a drawing to, to say this should, this component should be ocean plastic to just specify, okay, this is going to be nylon, black, you know, and made of ocean plastic. That might take like 10 seconds to do that. But the actual work of finding a source of ocean plastic, you know, the supply chain team has to work with that. The quality team has to vet all the material. They, there's a lot of negotiating on the back end that is not done by the designer, but the designer kind of has to champion it to make sure that all those other departments are going to be, you know, um, bringing the product out the way that you intended it to be. So there's probably another year and a half worth of work of actually making that a reality, mostly done by many other departments throughout the company. And and I know, you know, me and my team, we work very closely with our sourcing team, our supply team team, our quality teams, um, even kind of after the design and engineering of a product is finished to make sure that it really meets all the things that we aimed for it to meet in the theoretical design stage. Jane, I love that answer. I mean, I was, I love, I especially love the toaster and toast part of the, um, just sort of the concept of, you know, what are you making a thing for? You're not making it just for the purpose of having a thing. I mean, I think that applies in architecture as well. People don't want buildings. They want buildings that 
you know, shelter them and and do and and provide space for certain activities, right? That's it's a it's a very I love that sort of existential way of thinking about what we're making. Um, and I, I'm I just also wanted to interject here. Um, I'm such a fan of of human scale. I've actually followed the company for quite a long time because I used to work in magazines, and um, and I'm also a personal fan of it. I have human scale furniture in my office, which I got for the pandemic. So I just had to say, give my little shout out to the fact that I actually do really enjoy <laughs> the products personally. Um, I wanted to ask if you could share a little bit about something that you are most proud of accomplishing in your work life. This could be anything um, more personal or, or really anything at all. I think the what I would point to is is um it's not sort of a one moment accomplishment. It's more like a, a slow accomplishment over many years, but kind of changing the direction of a company. Um, like Human Scale's founder and CEO Bob King always cared about sustainability, but we didn't have a, a department or even a, an official person kind of making sure that everyone was on track and and meeting a certain level of sustainability and and all sort of aiming the same direction. So um, there were a lot of folks who had huge interpretations of what that might be. Some folks um, didn't take that to heart. And um, you know, depending on the department and, and all the specific individuals kind of had a different interpretation and, and some of them, it may not have resonated with them and they just kind of didn't make it a priority. Um, so really kind of, taking a company that was already operating and shifting the direction so that we're all aligned around the vision for sustainability. I heard the word entrepreneur recently, and I think that that kind of feels like it would describe the work. Um, and I wouldn't say there was a moment in time when it was complete, um, because I think we're always kind of, I'm still always working on making sure we're all facing that direction and, and, and all aligned around our vision for sustainability. But I think that was one of the things I'm most proud of is, is it's in some ways, I feel like it would be easier to start from scratch with nothing set in place and say, here's what we stand for and here's how we're going to operate. But with a big, um, you know, a lot of momentum already going in, in a certain way to shift that and, and kind of change direction was, was something I'm quite proud of. And then you do, in that same, an extension of that would be adapting our existing products. So we have a few products that have been designed specifically with, with sustainability really heavily in the design process. But there were also products that, that were launched prior to me being in the role of leading sustainability um, at human scale, which we were able to refine to the level where they achieve the full living product challenge and are now um, climate positive and, and you know, have the full materials disclosure um, with no redless ingredients and really get to that level of sustainability um, on existing products. So again, sometimes I find it can be more challenging when you already have something in place and there's momentum already going in one direction than starting with a clean slate. So I think that's kind of why I would I think some those might be some of the biggest um, achievements that I'd be most proud of. I really appreciate those examples, Jane. And I think they're powerful for our listeners too, because as much as it might be appealing to start with a blank slate in terms of either a company or a product, that's not the reality for most people in most jobs, right? These are, most people are working in existing, I mean, we have existing economic structures and companies and even product lines that need to be moving down this road. And um, so I, I really appreciate that example. I think it's, you know, bringing that kind of intentionality to an existing company and to existing products 
is that's really powerful. Um, I wonder if there's a project that you're working on right now that you'd like listeners to know about. So um, I'm usually pretty hesitant to talk about projects until we've achieved them. Um, and that is really being conservative on my part. Um, I find that um, especially in the world of like media and publicity and stuff, a lot of companies will will announce an intention to do something. And um, that's kind of, they get, you know, good publicity for doing that. And then I don't see necessarily the follow-up to see that they achieve it did they succeed you know I see a lot of companies announcing goals and um, sometimes they're you know 40 years from now or, or you know 25 years from now and um, I, I also some you know and a few things I've looked up afterwards to see if some companies have achieved those goals and they have, you know there's been no no mention if they haven't um, so I'm usually pretty conservative to, to not talk about projects until we achieve them until we like you know we deserve the attention for for taking them on um, but if you want to, I could kind of mention some areas we're digging into and things that we're finding interesting to look at and um, where we see the conversation and sustainability going. Does that work? Yes, absolutely. So um, from where I sit, I can see the conversation around social impacts is really um, forming a lot more. We just, uh, this past year, like starting at the beginning of this year, um, launched in March of this year, we launched with Grace Farms, the Design for Freedom um, toolkit. So looking at how would you, as an architect or an interior designer, specify materials and products that um, avoid forced labor and child labor in the supply chain. Um, so that's, you know, looking at that, it's really, in my opinion, at the beginning of the conversation, we, I worked with this, with Grace Farms and a couple of other architecture firms um, to develop the, the toolkit. And as I was working on that, um, I was happy to see us pulling it together, happy to see the conversation starting, Design for Freedom had their first summit, but I would say it feels really um, early in the conversation. Something like healthy materials, there are some good formats on how to, how to disclose this information, how to evaluate it, how to gather it. There's some tools that, that exist. Things like forced labor and child labor, we're still pretty early, for the building industry, we're still very early in the conversation. So that's one area that we're starting to working on um, a lot more deeply and in collaboration with other folks in the, the building industry with architects and designers. Um, other things we're always working on is eliminating red list ingredients from our products. And we used to just aim to generally eliminate all of them. Um, and a few years ago, I realized that it was um, not as uh, motivating. <laughs> so we really decided we're gonna focus on one specific red list ingredient each year. And, and the projects to eliminate them can take more, even more than a year to complete. So, you know, when you look at, we eliminated chrome six from one of our casters um, from the spindle of the caster, we had to convince the supplier to purchase other equipment, um, test it, learn how to process it, Chrome 3 instead. We had to do cycle testing, make sure it's still gonna meet that 15 year warranty. So that's, that's um, cycle testing was many months in itself. So the whole project was probably almost two years long by the time you got to the negotiation and all of the, the um, components of it to say, okay, it's now launched, it was almost two years. Um, and so eliminating the red list ingredients is, is significant. Each one of them is a major achievement. But in 20, 2019, you eliminated the last of Chrome 6. 2020, you eliminated the last of the PFAS 
CFC, that chemistry. Um, 2021 with CPA. This year, we're aiming for the last of the halogenous and retardants. We have one product left that has it for an electronics um, component. So one by one, we've been eliminating a whole sort of family of uh, redless ingredients from our products. And, and it's not that we start that year. We used to start several years earlier to, to achieve that. But we're getting down to the last like one or two um, ingredients that need to be removed from products. So that's very exciting. Um, we're working a lot more closely with our supply chain and um, focusing on the climate impacts of our supply chain, starting to reach deeper into our supply chain itself. And then starting to have conversations around how do you measure and understand your social impacts could be in the supply chain, but I mean, there are a lot of other ways that companies and our company um, interacts in this, you know, with different levels of society. So there's our employees, there's the local communities where we operate, there's a supply chain, there's a lot of different kind of ways of looking at it, trying to figure out how do we, how do we measure progress towards, I mean, what's the best way to measure progress? It can be such a, that topic can be so wide in its interpretation, like child labor will definitely fall under there. Same with indigenous peoples and, and, and same with, you know, gender equality and same with, uh, you know, so many different um, topics that kind of fall in, all under that sort of umbrella of social responsibility and trying to understand how you make progress and measure progress and know that you actually are making a difference can be really challenging. Jane, Those that is things we're focused on. <laughs> yeah, that's an amazing, amazing list of things. And I really appreciate the, the way you started by talking about your sort of conservative posture in terms of talking about results rather than aspirations and plans and targets. Um, and I, I actually think that for the entire <laughs> business world, it would really be a good idea if we could shift a little bit toward that direction and that approach, because there's just so much, I mean, I mean, I know companies like to talk about what they're aiming for and they're excited about it, but there's so much hyperbole. And then as you pointed out, so little um, on the other end, we're saying, well, like if you didn't meet a goal, why not? And like, what happened with that? Right. <laughs> there's just not a lot of that mm -hmm. happening um, in the, in regards to disclosure. So I think that's really interesting. Um, and I'm fascinated to hear about the supply chain work as well, which is very difficult and does take a very long time. And I appreciate hearing about race farms and design for freedom and how that's really at the beginning. Um, uh, I know that recently you attended the green biz circularity conference. And I, I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how you think about circularity today and how that relates to some of those um, things that you're working on. So when I was first introduced to the idea of circularity, I um, you know thought it was interesting and liked the idea. Um, but I noticed fairly quickly that it was usually the idea of circularity that I was seeing and not it, the actual practice of products really being circular, not circularity happening um, in real life. And so then I very quickly became um, skeptical of the theory of circularity because um, although we do need theoretical ideas around sustainability to guide us in making better decisions. It's not always um, clear when you're looking at a multiple different options, what's going to be the best option. So some of the, the theory and the academic background in sustainability can be very helpful, but the folks who are taking the time to really dig deep into some of these, these ideas. Um, but the theory is, um, 
it, it's only good if it's put into practice. You know, we look at the, the impacts that are happening in the environment and the impacts that are happening in our world are happening in practice. So we need to have the, the theory be put into practice for it to be valuable. And um, I think I had previously heard circularity described as uh, recycling, but for real this time. It's, and that to me summed up, you know, what the movement meant. Um, that's amazing. In general, is that it seemed that yeah, the, the idea of recycling has been around for a long time. And when I was younger, that was the, the basis of sustainability for the most part. Um, so, so I, for a while, for a long time, was quite skeptical about circularity as an idea because it just seemed to stay an idea. But when I was at the circularity conference recently, I was exposed to a lot of different um, initiatives uh, that were really taking that idea and putting it into practice. Some, some technology solutions that were overcoming some of the challenges and reasons why, why recycling isn't working the way we would expect it to and, and hope that it would. Um, and then also a shifting expectations. So, you know, what people are expecting, what consumers are expecting. And along with that, shifting regulations around single-use materials and specific single-use materials, but also sometimes very broad categories of single-use materials and some more um, a sort of a political will to address this issue is something I was seeing more of. So, so it got me a lot more hopeful that maybe we will see recycling happening in practice um, for real um, in the future. It's something that I think more people are asking about. And I think it's um, just to add to this conversation, it, I, the, I do think if we are able to make circularity happen in practice, it could be really effective. And the point of view I take from that is looking at our life cycle assessments. So HumanScale does the life cycle assessments of all of our products or pretty much all our product, products. When I look through to see where are the areas of biggest impact, it's usually two areas. The first one is when the material is first transformed into the, final, into the material it's gonna be. So when it goes from say bosite being transformed into aluminum or from oil transformed into a, you know, a, a generic, like a plastic, like a nylon, for example. That would be your, one of your biggest levels, your biggest um, actions of impact. And then the next one is when it's um, changing the main shape of it. So when it's aluminum, it's getting die cast or when it's nylon and then it gets injection molded. There can be a lot of other activities happening along the way, but in manufacturing, those two areas seem to be, from what I can see, just looking at trends of our products, it seems that those are some of the biggest areas of impact. And by using circular materials, you would eliminate that whole first step of that process of material to become uh, from raw, raw inputs to processing into that material, which is one of the biggest um, sources of impacts, climate impacts, water impacts, toxins, all, all types of, of different uh, footprints. So um, I'm much more excited about it now than, than I ever have been with, I, I still keep with me that, um, uh, amount of skepticism until I'm seeing it in practice to be, you know, reserve my excitement, but I'm ready to be excited about it as I see it happening in practice. <laughs> I love this. And I kind of wish that there was more opportunity for us to have like blank for real this time kinds of trends. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I feel like recycling for real this time is a pretty good description. Circularity has this kind of like cool designy term going for it that like I think it's helped to pick up some momentum and you know timeliness as you said like there's sort of other factors maybe but um I just really appreciate 
the the I don't know the more uh, critical lens that you're bringing to it, it it totally makes sense to me and I think it also kind of captures something I've been noodling over recently which is around like sort of the responsibilities that we each have and making sure that we're all doing our part and for manufacturers so much of what they can do is related to manufacturing and they can do you know like I sometimes I have learned to really raise my eyebrows when clothing manufacturers advertise to me by saying that this their sustainability sort of um, ethos is to make things that are super durable so that I will keep them a long time and wear them a lot and not get rid of them and I'm like, you know, I appreciate what you're doing here, but that's not, that's kind of on me to decide if I'm going to wear this shirt a million times for the next 30 years. So like, why don't you let me do my thing and you guys make sure you've got really sustainable clothing. <laughs> you know what I mean? So mm -hmm. I think it really fair. points to, um, sorry, to but it really points to the idea of circularity. It involves so many points through the life of the product and you know, from from before it's made all the way through to, you know, there's just so many systems and so many people that need to be uh, considered if you actually want to have material really circle back to become the next product afterwards. And so I think there's an idea when people think of circularity of like product designers or maybe, I don't know, fashion designers like designing stuff. But what we really need is so many more unexciting things like landfilling fees to increase with inflation or like you know the price mm. of oil when it drops to be super low then virgin material is much you know less expensive than recycled material it's these kind of factors that like all the systems behind it that are maybe not so exciting to to feature but that really need to be in place to have it happen in practice yeah oh my god it's so true I love yeah that's such, that's it's just inspiring hearing you talk about that because I know that you're doing the work. Um, so yes, thank you. That's super helpful. Um, okay, well, so we want to zoom out a little bit and talk about sort of how you situate the work at human scale in regards to this larger movement. And 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 I think it's a fascinating question. As you were saying, you're sort of an entrepreneur in many ways, and you have this responsibility for the company itself. And and you know, I think you. I, you've really explained, I think, in many ways how inter, how sort of intertwined sustainability is at human scale. But I also want to recognize, like, you are you are an environmentalist in some ways, or like that's what drives you. So, can you talk a little bit about how you balance your sort of um, identity as someone who is trying to relate to this larger movement, um, and then? how you also sort of are embedded in an organization. So how do you situate yourself in this larger dialogue of, of, of progress while working in one company? Yeah, it's funny. It doesn't really, um, to me, that's never been challenging. And I, I hadn't actually even thought about it until you asked the question. Um, so in my role at human scale, obviously there's a lot of internal facing, you know, getting people on board and getting everyone aligned facing the same direction. But then I, I guess I also happened to sit on a number of different committees and, and I was on the board of directors for the HPP Collaborative and I'm on the steering committee for ASID's Climate Health and Equity Committee and you know working with Grace Farms on the Design for Freedom Toolkit. And there, there are different sort of inter-company um, or sort of inter-organizational um, uh, um, initiatives that, that take place that, and, and I'm involved usually in the building industry. I haven't really been involved with like, I guess maybe with Next Wave, 
um, which is a, a group focused on manufacturing using ocean plastic. We have been involved with other manufacturers from totally other industries like electronics and, you know, I don't know, banking and apparel and totally other industries. But but I do kind of sit on those um, in those roles as a representative from human scale. And, it, and those are great um, two-way where we push things as far as we can, but then usually in those kind of committees and those, you know, the, the folks who are at the table with me are also my counterparts in the other, other organizations who've also learned uh, a lot and we can sort of teach each other a lot, which is great. So when we can work with folks on, you know, helping the whole industry move forward, that's, that's some of the things that we, I get really excited about. Um, the Design for Freedom Toolkit, for example, is like, you know, it's launched so that everybody can use it. And it was a fair bit of, quite a bit of work for, for us to work on. Um, but it's nice to put something out there that, that can help to shift and make things easier for other folks who might not have the time to dig in that deeply. So we've also been actively trying to, um, at human scale, I you know, work on trying to educate our clients and then I try to educate a, a select group of, of folks within human scale who are they're called sustainability ambassadors and then they get a deeper level of education and you know, um, sort of training and they kind of get more exposure to sustainability. They also help to, to educate clients about um, some of the sustainability topics that they might need to know about. Um, I think those are some, some of the areas where, where I feel like there's really a lot of synergy in doing the role that I have within human scale and then taking some of that knowledge and, and both learning from and, and influencing the overall building industry, which is kind of where we sit as far as like our, our marketplaces. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love that. And I do, I mean, I'm I'm not surprised seeing you, but it's great to hear you articulate that point that in, in many ways, and I, I see this in the work you do, and I hope others take inspiration from it. You, you do not only spend your time promoting human scale products, um, no matter how sustainable you think they are, you are also doing the work of uh, creating pathways for other companies and participating in sort of the creation of these levers for change. So I, I think I, I think it's a it's an incredible model of leadership to follow. So thank you for it. Um, and uh, I want to ask you a little bit more about about the sort of the broader landscape. What would you say from your angle are the major areas that you feel like we have made a lot of progress? Um, in sustainability or in, you know, regenerative products and where, where are the major areas that we haven't made enough progress? So I, I mean, the conversation in sustainability is always evolving and changing. And recently it seems like in the last few years, it has been becoming more and more um, um, the awareness of sustainability, public awareness has really been growing. So that has led to more um, both more discussion on the political side of like regulations and actually putting into uh, regulations or laws what the requirements would be. Uh, we see this, you know, maybe some in the United States and different states and then also in Europe and in different countries, we see different types of sustainability um, regulations starting to come into effect or starting to be proposed. Um, and then there, there's a lot more scientific data underlying a lot of the sustainability claims and the sustainability expectations. I find people are becoming more skeptical, which I really appreciate. I always love when, you know, it used to be that if, some, if a company said, we care about the environment, everyone was like, great, that's fantastic. And now people are like, really? Well, what are you doing about it? <laughs> and I love that. Um, so that is fantastic. Um, a lot more accountability expectation. Um, there's more 
they're you know people are are making choices and actually you know making purchases based on their, their valuing sustainability. Um, so that's something that's really I see as an improvement. The uh, the ability to track you know climate impacts, um, science based targets. Some of these you know ten years ago it was a lot harder to. I mean, you could do the calculations, but there weren't as many protocols around it. And and something like science-based targets has been really helpful to, for companies to understand, you know, how good do you need to be? What are you kind of aiming towards? Where we're kind of like, where are we all kind of aiming at? Um, and then um, I say on this area where we're lacking in progress or, or maybe where things are a little less rosy is that some of the you know, increased scientific information gives us a picture um, that maybe things are a little worse off than we had expected or that we had been thinking about or realized. So I look at something like ocean plastic was not part of the conversation generally in the public, maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago. And um, now we see a lot of talk about ocean plastic, but it's partly because the numbers are so horrific as to how much plastic there is in the ocean. We hear stats like, by 2050, there may be more plastic in the ocean than fish. It really, it's really quite a wake-up call. Um, but unfortunately, that some of the, some of, now that we're learning more, sometimes the things we're learning are not, um, you know, are not good news. Um, and then the other thing I find is that we need to adapt our systems uh, faster, maybe than we, than we can. Or I don't know. We as a as a species, like human beings, really need to collaborate. I think if we do collaborate, we can definitely address all of the challenges that are ahead of us. Um, but but collaboration seems to be more and more of a challenge these days. And there's lots of different factors weighing into that. Um, but it, it means um, not just talking to folks who think like us and look like us or um, you know have exactly the same background or values or you know something that we really share in common with, but trying to understand where someone else is coming from. Because all the decisions that um, all the changes that would need to be made to preserve, say, our ecosystem, which we can is absolutely needed to life, um, there are going to be changes that will affect somebody. So, you know, really understanding and collaborating better is something that we would absolutely need to to do. And that's one thing that I don't see that we're getting better at these days, unfortunately. Jane, those are very astute observations. Um, the last couple being. A little sobering, um, but I, I totally appreciate um, that perspective. Um, and I we like to close with a question about um, who inspires you? Who who are the people that you, in terms of leaders or individuals or people you're reading, anything that sort of you look to for a little inspiration? Yeah, I have um, a couple of uh, ladies that have mentored me in different ways. So Chloe Bendistis from the Seward Partnership. Um, she's not famous uh, as far as I know, but she was just just so effective and just so um, um, very, like I feel like if, I, if she hadn't been there to mentor me at the beginning, I would not have gone nearly as far. So I, I, I'm grateful to her always. And then Rochelle Routman from HMTX, I, I find she's she um, has a really good vision for sustainability and for women leadership. And then there are a few authors. I often find I'm reading books not on sustainability, but on other topics that are, um, you know, tangential. So, so David Graeber, I have found really interesting. Um, and he had, uh, you know, a book about um, the history of debt, which was 
kind of unpacks sort of what money might mean in society, which I think is really was really fascinating to think of how we how we relate to each other. Um, and uh, I'm going to butcher this name. <laughs> I'll do my best. Anand Giridharadas, I think is um, definitely if you have show notes, maybe you can put a link to that because I'm sure I pronounce it badly. Um, but he has a book called Winners Take All that that was really, I think, a great um, way of unpacking why why we can't just rely on charity from the you know the folks who have been very successful and are maybe very wealthy to be what saves folks who are not doing well. But the system is we need to reevaluate our systems. And um, you know, there I think that when we look to sustainability, often um, the specific issues that we're looking at are caused by so many other things around it. So it's sometimes useful to be looking at what else is happening surrounding the issues that we're looking directly at. Oh, I love that. Yeah, Kira, did you want to say? I know you read one of those books. I did. Okay. I'm sorry to jump into. I I'm a fan <laughs> of Winners Take All, and also the um, David Graeber has a another book out that I think it came out last year. Now I'm blanking on. Is it the Dawn of Everything? Dawn of Everything is the yeah. title, and the, I can't remember the other author's name, but it was um, really mind blowing. And so, yeah, I, really valuable per perspectives, and I especially appreciate that you bring up books that are not really environmental books per se much bigger picture yeah but I mean I think it's such a good point Jane that like it, it's it's it gets at the I, I guess another way of putting what you're saying is is that reading books like that uh, help us understand the frame and the context that we take for granted in our work and so like I think reading books like that helps us question are, are there constraints we're assuming here that we shouldn't that we shouldn't assume? Are there goals that we want to sort of modify? You know, like I do think it really kind of like it gets back to our work, but it's sort of more because it's, um, it's the stuff we take for granted, you know. Um, so yeah, I I I love that. I I I also really love Winners Take All, and I would love to read David Graeber books. I've been hearing about them from all corners of my life, so I'm excited for. For that um well with that uh, clearly we have a lot more we could talk about but jane we should let you go this has been so great to have you here thank you so much for being with us yeah thank you for having me yeah and and uh that is it for us this week on the design future podcast i i will we will try to make sure there's some links so that you guys can uh, check out the books that jane was mentioning um, and uh, I, I hope that they inspire you all and that this has given you a little food for thought for your week. So thank you for listening. Please uh, remember to leave us a review on Apple. The, Apple. the reviews are accumulating. It's so great. Thank you all for doing it. Uh, it really matters. It helps people find us. Stay safe and we'll see you next time.